Please rise for the reading of God's word. I will read the first two verses of Psalm 91, which we just read as our Old Testament reading, the entire psalm, which we'll be looking at. But hear now God's word. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God, in Him I will trust. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said. You may be seated. This is the first Sunday in Lent, and we should remember that the Lenten season is just a a way of marking the church calendar. Uh, It specifically commemorates the 40 days prior to Easter, uh, but within that 40 days, the Sundays don't count uh, because the Lenten season is considered a season of fasting and reflection upon suffering and sin and what Jesus went through as he was leading up to the cross. But since Sundays are always a celebration of the resurrection, Sundays are always feast days. So uh, we don't count those in the 40. But this is a time of reflection upon the life of Jesus each year as it leads again to the cross and his resurrection. We have winter before we have spring. So we'll take a break from the book of Acts for a few weeks but we'll return to that glorious story of the work of the resurrected Christ after Easter. The world is a swirl of beauty and turmoil, ups and downs, and so are our lives. Regarding the turmoil, some of it is major, some of it is minor, some expected, most unexpected. Some of it's public, national, geographical, political, and some is very personal. It's relative. That is, this, for example, has been an extra stressful week for me, but it was a walk in the park compared to most of our brothers and sisters in Eastern Europe. Psalm 91 offers... God's people, that is you and me, a guide for navigating these tumultuous times. Actually, it's more than a guide. It gives us 15 promises from God. Jesus would soon be facing 40 days of temptation in the wilderness, and ultimately the shadow of Gethsemane and the horrible cross, death itself, These are the kinds of things, of course, that would get all of our attention, that shift our priorities. Where do we go? Where do we hide? Where do we rest? Where do we find our help and our refuge when storms come, as they inevitably do? This morning, I simply want to take us on a brief walk through Psalm 91 and see the many promises from God that are yours in Christ. According to the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this psalm was written by King David, who was the Lord's anointed. David was the Old Testament anticipation of Jesus. 
The psalm was for David, and ultimately this psalm was for David's greater son, Jesus Christ. Even the devil understood the application, unique application of this psalm to Jesus. In the wilderness, when the Lord was tired and hungry, the devil came to him and quoted part of this psalm. In fact, it is the only uh, quotation uh, that we have have recorded uh, of the devil uh, in regard to the scriptures. He says, uh, quoting from Matthew, from quoting, this is recorded in Matthew 4, 6, but quoting from Psalm 91, 11, and 12, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. We'll get back to that in a few minutes. Psalm 91 is one of the most comprehensive statements of the scope of the Lord's protection of believers in the midst of life's perils. And as such, this beautiful psalm has been a primary source of comfort uh, for countless believers as they cope with threats and anxieties. Thus, long ago, Athanasius recommended the recitation of this psalm to, to Marcellinus, and he said this, If you desire to establish yourself and others in devotion, to know what confidence is to be reposed in God and what makes minds fearless, you will praise God by reciting the 91st Psalm. On the other hand, this is not a psalm uh, of magical words to be run to uh, just when we're in a bind. This is a psalm that is given to those who habitually reside in the presence of God. If you're far away from God now, then he will still be far away from you later. He is much more than the man upstairs who's waiting to bail us out of trouble. As Charles Spurgeon put it, and I really like the way this phrase is, he says, outer court worshipers little know what belongs to the inner, inner sanctuary. If we're sitting on the outside of the temple. If we're sitting away from the throne of God at a distance, then we're not going to know what we need to know. We're not going to know him intimately. In the opening two verses... We find the foundation of our safety in the names of God. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of Yahweh, He is my refuge and my fortress. Elohim, my God, in Him I will trust. The word dwell is used in this verse, and it actually means to take up permanent residence, to abide. He reminds us to stay in his presence, for it is a permanent place for us to live. His word says that if we do that, we will rest in the very shadow of the Almighty. Shadows are a place of protection, a place of covering. Uh, They provide relief from the direct heat of the sun. And if the heat is severe, then the shade, of course, is the place we run to. Under the shadow of the Almighty can mean in the presence of God, God is always surrounding you. His presence 
in his presence, all good is yours. I like the phrase, Pastor Volkov uses it all the time, many Christians do, regardless of what we're talking about, regardless of what we might think of as, as a difficult situation, he ends with, God is good. It's a way of reminding us of that sure thing, the goodness of God, even when I can't always see how that's going to work out. Understanding this enables you and me to be at peace, regardless of our circumstances. There isn't a whole lot of comfort in saying the Lord is a refuge and a fortress, unless I can say the Lord is my refuge and he is my fortress. This is my challenge to you today, that you can say today by your words and actions that he is all of these things for you, regardless of the circumstances, and that you don't seek shelter anywhere else. Trust in God is essential in order to appropriate the promises of God. Is the God of the Bible your refuge in times of trouble? So, for example, think about some kind of trouble that you've had recently. Last week, last month, last year. Was God your refuge? Is he? Is that who you went to? Did you bow before him? Did you cry out to him? Did you look to him? And if you're like me, I would have to answer no. I have not always done that. I've relied on myself or I've... I've grabbed other, looked to other things, or just gotten anxious and fretted about it, worried about it, got upset about it. And then I had to remember, wait a minute, I'm under the shadow of the Almighty. And I'll say this, too, in light of just a number of things. Uh, this, this is almost a sermon. I thought, I need to just come up here and preach this without any of you here today uh, because I so desperately need to hear this. Um, so this doesn't mean, um, so, so this Psalm promises, its promises are for you only if he's the one you go to. It doesn't mean that those who trust God are never sick or never die or never suffer from an enemy's plot. It does mean that those who trust him habitually are delivered from such dangers, and every Christian can tell stories of such deliveries. In fact, our entire lives are filled with such until God finally takes us to be with him. So I'd like us to run through this, 15 promises from God in Psalm 91. Uh, Someone very kindly and cheerfully said they read it this morning and found 17. Um, and, uh, so I don't know if I've combined some, but there's a bunch. Okay. And I'm going to mention 15 of them in verse three, number one, he will deliver you in times of trouble. Surely he shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the perilous pestilence. According to Scripture, everything God ever promised to his people has been fully recognized and realized in the person of Jesus Christ. Everything God promises, the Bible says, is yes and amen in Jesus. These promised blessings are now available to any person. doesn't matter you know, where you came from, 
Doesn't matter your race, doesn't matter your ethnicity. We've been looking at all of that in the book of Acts. If you belong to him, if you come to him and put your faith in Jesus, then these promises are for you. The Apostle Paul said, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ. You're united to Christ all the time. Whether you acknowledge it, remember it, recognize it, it's true. There are true conspiracies in this world and secret plans that come against us. However, these are not secret plots to the one who has the omniscient eye who is watching over us. Psalm 124, 6-8. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us as prey to their teeth. Our soul has escaped as a bird from from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord, of Yahweh, who made heaven and earth. If he can make heaven and earth, he can take care of me. Actually, that was the message he gave to Job, right? Job wanted to know, why is all this happening to me? And he said, I have some questions. And God says, you sit down and let me ask you some questions first. Where were you when I created the world? Who do you think feeds all these animals every day? And he goes through a litany there of questions for Job, and Job ends that series of questions by putting his hand over his mouth. God never directly answers Job and says, this is why this particular thing is happening to you, but in effect what he said is, if I can take care of the universe, I think I can take care of you. And and what does Job say? Though he slay me, yet I will trust him. Number two, next promise, verse four, he will protect and cover you. He shall cover you with his feathers and under his wings you shall take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and buckler. This psalm is full of metaphors, beautiful poetic images that really communicate more than just kind of uh, raw data. So think of these images. It's interesting that the Psalms are known for their war themes, but we must not overlook their prevalent gentler themes as well. In fact, Jesus appropriated this first image for himself as he looked out over Jerusalem. He said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often have I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings but you were unwilling. He would have sheltered them, but they would not come to dwell in this shelter of the Most High. So the Lord is pictured as a mother bird that protects her young with her wings. And under her wings, the young will find a secure place of refuge from threats. I found this out the hard way when I was about 13. I would go over about a mile from my house. I'd ride my bicycle over to the Red River, and there was a horse stable there, and my grandfather had a horse, and uh, I would ride the horse and saddle it up and ride up and down the Red River. And one day after I'd ridden, there was a mother hen sitting there next to uh, the barn, and she was sitting on chicks, probably ten chicks. And being a city boy, I I didn't know what I was about to get into. But I decided I was going to lift her up so I could see those chicks. Well, she was chasing me across the pasture, and I had a rake uh, trying to defend myself because she was not going to let me near those chicks. Well, 
That image is the image of God as a mother hen, as a mother bird protecting her little ones. That's what he does for us. Neither the hawks in the sky nor the snares in the field can harm us if we're under his wing. Threats out there, threats close by. The Lord's protective care is compared to that of an eagle. For example, in Deuteronomy 32:11, as an eagle stirs up its nest, hovers over its young, spreading out its wings, taking them up, carrying them on its wings. The second image of verse 4 reminds us of God's word to Abram when he was returning from his attack on the kings who had raided Sodom and Gomorrah and carried off Abram's nephew Lot. Abram won the battle, recovering Lot, the women, and their possessions, but Abram himself was in danger of retaliation from those kings. In Genesis 15:1, God spoke and said, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. In ancient times, shields were big, and they were used to hide behind during an attack usually from arrows and spears that were launched by enemies. And the buckler was that thing, I never knew what it was called, that is on the wrist, on the forearm, another smaller kind of shield. And it was usually there uh, to protect the soldier during hand-to-hand combat, up close, personal kind of combat. This psalm mentions many threats that would be very hard for a normal human being to ward off. Whether I'm rich or poor, strong or weak, there's not much I can do to safeguard myself from the schemes of others, from disease, from pandemics, or from external terrors. And we should notice that in this verse it says, His truth, that is actually what is our shield and buckler. His word. His promises. Third, and these are not all of equal length if you're trying to track that, uh, verses 5 and 6. You shall not be afraid of the terror by night, nor of the arrow that flies by day, nor of the pestilence that walks in darkness, nor of the destruction that lays waste at noonday. In other words, what are we afraid of? What do we have to fear? To not be afraid is a blessing all by itself. Fear and anxiety are often worse than the thing itself. These are the things Psalm 91 promises that I'll not have to fear because of the Lord's protection. It doesn't say that I won't have to face them, just as it says that I don't have to fear them. And I, it, excuse me, it just says that I don't have to fear them and that I won't ever be abandoned to them. The message seems to be that nothing will touch me in life or in death that doesn't first pass through God's encircling hands. As long as I know that my trials are limited and approved by Jesus Christ, I am content. This is why James could write, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Why? Because God's at work in here. This is not meaningless. 
This has purpose. This has a goal. The Apostle Paul could assure us that all things work together for good to those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Think of Romans 8. Great passage here about this, where Paul says, It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen. Remember, you're united to him. Who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. So no matter what's going on, Jesus is praying for you. He's interceding for you. Who shall separate us from the love of God, from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you believe that? Clearly, the personal and providential oversight Paul envisioned did not guarantee exemption from earthly trials. We've known something of the pestilence or plague over the past couple of years, and the fear of that pestilence has overcome many people. But it has not overcome those who have been aware of the sovereign protection of God. His peace and comfort don't come and go with the seasons or with the security of the country or anything else. Isaiah 26, 3 and 4, listen to this. You, God, will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for in Yah the Lord is everlasting strength. Number four, he will vindicate you. Verses 7 and 8, a thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not come near you. Only with your eyes shall you look and see the reward of the wicked. We need to learn to watch and to wait for the judgment and the downfall of the wicked. It's like the Bible gives us this preview, this ability to see how the story ends. We don't always see it in the moment. We're in the middle of the book. We're in the middle of the chapter. It doesn't usually come overnight, but it surely does come in due time their foot shall slide. It comes because God is the moral universe, uh, ruler of the universe and over mankind, and both the righteous and the unrighteous will receive their reward. Consider what Paul wrote to the Thessalonians in chapter 1, 2 Thessalonians, verses 3 through 10. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other, so that we ourselves boast of you among churches, among Uh, boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. So it's not that bad things aren't happening, which manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God. 
that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer, since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you, and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels." in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the, and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. Number five, verse nine, he will be your refuge. Because you have made the Lord, who is my refuge, even the most high, your dwelling place. There's a condition attached to the kind of protection that this psalm is promising, uh, that the individual makes the most high his dwelling place. Martin Luther wrote that this refers to, quote, one who really dwells and does not merely appear to dwell and does not imagine that he dwells in God. Consider the opposite of our truly depending upon God and instead turning to other things for our refuge in times of trouble. I'm going to give three examples. We might be tempted to depend on political alliances. Isaiah 30, verse 2 who walk to go down to Egypt and have not asked my advice, that's God speaking, to strengthen themselves in the strength of Pharaoh and to trust in the shadow of Egypt. You feel safer having Egypt's protection than you do God. All eyes looked to Washington. Stop. Second, to cry out to a collection of idols, including modern-day idols. Isaiah 57, 13. When you cry out, that's what we do when we're in trouble, right? When there's a problem, we cry out. Let your, he says, let your collection of idols deliver you. But the wind will carry them all away. A breath will take them. And he who puts his trust in me, God says, shall possess the land. And shall inherit my holy mountain. Third, there's all kinds of lies out there. All kinds of false promises. All kinds of things that say they can fix you and fix us. And offer a remedy. Snake oil, if you will. But to take refuge in lies. Isaiah 28:15. Because you have said, we have made a covenant with death. And with Sheol, we are in agreement. When the overflowing scourge passes through, it will not come to us, for we have made lies our refuge, and under falsehood we have hidden ourselves. What happens when you trust in, a, in snake oil, a false remedy? You'll, you'll die. You, that, it's not going to save you. Remember, everybody's trying to sell you something all the time. Promise number six, and we'll pick up the pace here. Uh, he will protect you, verse 10. No evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague come near your dwelling. Charles Spurgeon, famous English preacher, speaks of the man who actually trusts in God's protection, and he sa- describes him this way. Illness to him 
is no ill, but only good in a mysterious form. Losses enrich him. Sickness is his medicine. Reproach is his honor. Death is his gain. No evil in the strict sense of the word can happen to him, for everything is overruled for good. Happy is he who is in such a case. He is secure where others are in peril. He lives where others die. You remember what Joseph says to his brothers after all the trouble they put him in, threatening his life, landing him in prison. And at the end of the story, you know this, he says to his brothers, who are in trouble of their own right now because he has the power to take their lives, but he assures them, do not be afraid for I am in the place of God. I'm in the place where God wanted me. No matter what you did, I'm exactly where God wanted me. But as for you, you meant it. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Remember, there was a famine, and Joseph was in charge of overseeing, uh, storing up food to be able to feed people, including his brothers. And so in the midst of difficult things, we need to see the hand of God at work and trust him to bring about good things. Number seven. He will keep you, verses 11 and 12, for he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. As I mentioned earlier, this is the verse that the devil quoted as part of his temptation of, of Christ, according uh, recorded in Matthew 1, 11, and Luke 4, 1 through 13. But he misquoted it. Imagine that. He left out. In all your ways. That is, in the ways marked out for us by God and not in our own willful ways. This was the very essence of the temptation. He wanted Jesus to do his own thing, to go his own way, rather than trusting God and being contented with God's way. The devil wanted Jesus to test God by jumping off the pinnacle of the temple, trusting his father to send angels to bear him up, to catch him before he hit the ground and was dashed to pieces, and he could do all this to impress everybody. Jesus replied, saying, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Ironically, when Jesus replied to Satan, rejecting the temptation to jump from the temple, the angels were there anyway, though invisibly, for after Satan had uh, completed his temptation, we're told God's angels came and attended to Jesus. In other words, God was upholding Jesus in the temptation. I think that someday we're all going to be astonished at how much angels were involved in unseen service to us. Jesus said that all God's little ones are assigned angels as intercessors and guardians And he said in Matthew 18, See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. As for the imagery of trading on lions and serpents, such imagery is often found in the Bible to refer to evil men and spiritual powers. 
But the, the message in these verses, therefore, seems to be that God has assigned angels to my protection and personal care. I'm not alone against my enemies. I'm not alone in those circumstances and trials. The waters will not rise above my head, and with every temptation, he will provide a way of escape. If one doesn't exist, then as in the case of Peter, an angel will be sent to open the door. Remember that when the devil fell, he only took a third of the angels with him. Guess what that left behind? Two-thirds. Therefore, those who are with me are more than those who are against me. Whom then shall I fear? Number eight, verse 13, he'll give you victory. You shall tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent you shall trample underfoot. The Lord's trust in the Father also resulted in Satan's defeat, another part of the psalm that the devil omitted. The psalm tells us that if we go in God's way, trusting him to uphold us, then we will tread on the lion and the cobra. We will trample them. The Bible elsewhere describes Satan as a roaring lion and as the ancient serpent. Jesus triumphed over him by trusting God, and likewise in Christ the righteous will be victorious over Satan too. Number nine, he will exalt you, verse 14. Because he has set his love upon me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him on high because he has known my name. You see, there's a change of voice here at the end of the psalm as God speaks to guarantee what David has claimed as his own and offered to faithful others. God pledges all of these blessings to the one who holds fast to him in love and who knows his name. The verb knows expresses an intimate relationship. It is a personal relationship because the true believer knows God's name. To know God's name is ultimately to know who he is and how he has acted in Christ to secure our salvation. Such are all those who call on the Lord, looking to him for their salvation. First Peter five, uh, 1 Peter 5, 6 and 7, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. He's going to honor you, casting your care upon him because he cares for you. Number 10, he will deliver you, verse 14 and 15. Because he has set his love upon me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him on high because he has known my name. He shall call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. In these verses, God adds his seal to what the psalmist has been saying. The psalm speaks throughout the many dangers uh, uh, that threaten God's people. But its central message is that God will rescue and protect them from all, protect from all those, these dangers for those who trust God. Those who have trusted God and know, know this and praise God constantly for His help and protection is the essential prerequisite for participating in God's comprehensive plan of protection. And that, of course, is an intimate relationship with Him. Because the believer loves me, God says. Remember, now in this section, he's 
The I is God. Because you love God, because the believer loves me, God says, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows me. Number 11, also in verse 15, he will answer you. He shall call upon me and I'll answer him. I'll be with him in trouble. I'll deliver and honor him. Notice the reference to prayer when he calls upon me. This reference to prayer indicates that the only way in which we can experience the Lord's commitment to the safety of the believer is prayer. We will most certainly have need to pray. And the Lord promises that when we do, when we call, he will answer. Number 12, he will be with you. Again, verse 15, he shall call upon me and I'll answer him and I'll be with him in trouble. I'll deliver and honor him. One of the great blessings of following hard after God is knowing that when we call upon him, he'll be with us. To have a companion in the time of trouble is really great, right? I want somebody with me. But to have the Almighty as our companion in the time of trouble, now that's the greatest help. I like you. I like having you nearby. Uh, one of the guys that's uh, in Ukraine right now, one of the pastors there, Sansanich, um, as Marinell says, uh, he scares me. Um, uh, he's a tough guy. He's, he's seen a lot. And I, th- I thought he probably wouldn't want me around right now, but if I were there, I'd want him around. Um, I'd want to be sticking close to him. Uh, I want to know where to go and what to do next. Well, God's better than that. Okay. Um, so number 13, he will deliver and honor you again from verse 15. Um, these verses say that God will not only deliver, but will honor such a person. They also say that God will be with the believer in trouble, which is a way of acknowledging that God doesn't always lift a Christian out of trouble. Sometimes it's his will that we endure them and profit from them. We're told in Romans that we acquire hope, develop character, and learn perseverance in the things that we suffer. And when we go through such circumstances, God's with us. He sustains us in our sufferings. Number 14 Uh, From verse 16, he will satisfy you. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Spurgeon said, the man described in this psalm fills out the measure of his days, and whether he dies young or old, he is quite satisfied with life. And finally, promise number 15, he will show you his salvation. With long life, I'll satisfy him and show him my salvation. Long life and salvation for the one who seeks God's satisfaction. Long life is a blessing frequently promised to the righteous in the Old Testament. But the promise is not necessarily for a specific number of days. There's a whole range of lengths of days that people live, but rather for a complete and full life. Here is the added promise of a future salvation. These verses also make a point that has been developed several times already that these promises are for those who trust God. Therefore, they are blessings that some believers miss out on. And they miss out on them simply because they're always fretting and not trusting God. 
Here the psalmist quotes God as saying that the blessings are for those who love God and acknowledge his name, call upon him, and seek satisfaction in what he alone can provide. And so what this passage promises is that God does not merely look after and watch over the church. He watches over me. He watches over you. What it means is that my future and my inheritance are secure. The devil can threaten, he can bluster and blow, but he cannot take what is kept secure for me in him. I can pray Psalm 91 with confidence, claiming all of its promised benefits and protections because God in his grace chose me before the foundation of the world. Jesus, the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, has purchased me. His strength allows me to hold fast to him in love. His spirit in my heart cries, Abba, Father, and teaches me to know my Savior and hear and understand his word. He helps me to pray and he testifies to my spirit concerning my salvation from top to bottom. It's a matter of grace. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, thank you for your presence with us. Thank you for your almighty shadow. Thank you that you go before us and cover us from behind. Thank you that you are in our midst and that our future is secure in the place you're preparing for us. Your words bring such hope and comfort. Remind us of your strength today. May we see glimpses of your glory and blessing along the way as we seek after you. For victory and salvation are found in you alone. Amen. Amen. 17th century uh, at Westminster produced the Westminster Confession and Catechisms, um, which our church holds to, which is a series of questions and answers. That is the shorter catechism. Many of us have memorized and heard uh, many times in our lives. And I was thinking about here in Psalm 91 how as we... As we think about God and draw near to God and he's, we dwell in him and we understand uh, why we're here, the chief end of man. And I remembered this story that I read 30 years ago, I suppose, in an essay by Benjamin Warfield on the value of the catechism. Okay? So typically, catechism, you ask a question and you have an answer and you memorize that so you and it, it's drawn from Scripture. So he tells this story. He says, uh, what is the indelible mark of the Shorter Catechism? We have the following bit of personal experience from a general officer in the United States Army. He was uh, in a great western city at a time of intense excitement and violent rioting. The streets were overrun daily by a dangerous crowd. One day he observed approaching him a man of singularly combined calmness and firmness of appearance whose very demeanor inspired confidence. So impressed was he with, with his bearing amid the surrounding uproar that when he had passed, he turned and looked back at him only to find that the stranger had uh, done the same thing. On observing his turning, the stranger at once came back to him and touching his chest with his forefinger demanded, without preface, what is the chief end of man? 
on receiving the countersign, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Ah, he said, I knew you were a shorter catechism boy by your looks. Why, that was just what I was thinking of you, was the rejoinder. Let us come to the table and delight in our Lord, in his mercy, his forgiveness and kindness to us as we remember. All your ways of mercy tend tend us and culminate in our delight. You did weep, sorrow, and suffer that we might rejoice. For our joy you have sent the Comforter, multiplied your promises, removed all our sins, shown us our future happiness, given us a living fountain. You are preparing joy for us and joy uh, indeed for all your people. We pray, we wait for joy. We long for that joy. Give us more than we can hold, desire, or think of. If we weep at night, give us joy in the morning. Let us rest in the thought of your love, the pardon for sin, our title to heaven, and our future sinless state. O Lord, continue to change our way of thinking. May your thoughts be our thoughts. May we see the way you see And may the world see us as your imitators. Fill us with joy today and cause us to rejoice in and for all things that we might be encouraged and strengthened to serve you with gladness. Bless now our resting and our feasting. In Jesus' name, amen. Sing to the Lord, bless his name, proclaim the good news of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his wonders among all the peoples. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. Amen.